Hey everybody, I just want to take a moment to talk about a new thing I'm doing. Over the years, many of you have reached out to me telling me how much you love the podcast, but also wish there were more personalized takeaways and more in-depth interactions with our guests to hear what they think about comedy. This is why I'm now launching my new digital academy, Blueprint for Success. With exclusive interviews and comedy philosophies of stars and industry veterans, personalized versions of the Industry Standard podcast, commercial-free, and one-on-one coaching time with me. Blueprint for Success will give you the powerful tools that will take you up the elevator beyond the competition and reach the highest possible levels to achieve your dreams. Whether it be stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, hosting, radio podcasting, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or an agent. Now I'm here to help, personally. We'll go on an express train of comedy and entertainment like nobody else has before. You can find out more about Blueprint for Success and the comedy business on my website at barrycats.com. Together, we'll take your career where you want it to go. You are about to listen to an original episode of Industry Standard with Barry Katz. If you'd like more info on our schedule of upcoming shows, go to barrykatz.com. After you finish the podcast, please take a moment to subscribe to it, leave a comment, and rate it, even if you think it sucks. Enjoy the show. Welcome back to another episode of Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. Today is a very unique and original and special episode based on the release of the JFK documents that after 25 years have been disclosed. President Donald Trump made the decision to let the public see The majority of the documents, except for some that he's holding back based on the recommendations of the CIA and the FBI. But it's a step in the right direction, and after doing the documentary that I did, I Killed JFK, which a lot of you know about, that centered on the only living person in history that's ever admitted to killing JFK, James Files, I have been fascinated by this subject, and it's something that has taken a hold of me. I'm not a conspiracy theorist. I'm not a guy who every day is thinking, how can I solve the JFK mystery? I'm just a guy who has been fascinated by it and simply has always wanted to know the truth and never felt that he got the truth as well as I'm sure millions and millions of people around the world feel the same way. And so this past month was a very unique month for me in the sense that a few weeks back I was on the beach with my kids and I got a call from Robert Kennedy Jr. Or as many of you like to refer to him as Bobby Kennedy Jr., Robert Kennedy's son, whose father was assassinated about five years after JFK. And he told me that he wanted to talk to me about the work I was doing. He wanted to know more. 
He wanted to be able to talk to a lot of the people that I interviewed and a lot of the people that were in the documentary. And he wanted to screen the film at his house, and he invited me there where I screened the film with a few select people, including himself, his wife, Cheryl Hines, and Larry David. It was an amazing experience. I enjoyed it tremendously. And afterwards, the response was incredibly positive. And what a presence Bobby Kennedy Jr. has. And Cheryl and Larry were just amazingly supportive. And it was just reaffirming to me when you spend three or four years of your life doing something that you're not used to doing, because I'm a comedy guy, it was a really special moment. And then, coincidentally, having Trump release all the documents reaffirmed maybe the work that I had been doing that was all for a purpose instead of maybe having no purpose. So that meant a lot, very reassuring. And so today what I thought I'd do is when I had the documentary in theaters around Kennedy's 100th birthday, and it was in 250 theaters, I had the chance to interview five of the last living experts on the JFK assassination. They were Zach Shelton, who was the guy who put James Files in prison, was an FBI special agent around this case. There was Barr McLennan, who was one of the foremost experts, written the book called Blood, Money, and Power. Uh, there was Judith Vary Baker, who was Lee Harvey Oswald's lover at the time. There was Jim Mars, who just passed away, who was a journalist in 63 and in the 60s and followed the assassination and had become an incredible voice until he recently passed away on what happened then. And my guest today, who was a national security advisor to more presidents than I can count, and a guy who is one of the foremost experts in the world and remains one of the most respected and amazing men I've ever met, let alone involved in this. And the fact that he never took any money, just sat there in his home and answered these questions for me and me being the only long-form interview he's ever given that I know of in this space, and that's Gordon Ferry. And you're going to hear some things today that are going to completely blow you away. They're going to blow you away because this is a guy who was in the White House and around Eisenhower and Kennedy and several other presidents. There's no reason for him to sit in a chair and talk to me and tell me things that aren't true. There's no purpose. There's nothing. So when he talks, it's like E.F. Hutton. I listen, and I listen hard, and I really, really was affected by him. Probably more so than almost every interview I've ever done in my life because of the subject matter and unlocking the greatest murder mystery in history. And one of the things I'd like to tell you, 
if I could do so in a way that makes sense and ties it all together. He impressed me most because he was searching for the truth himself. But he's not so much searching for the truth. He's a guy who knows the truth. And he's not afraid to tell the truth. And he's a guy who probably five presidents and God knows how many other administrations have trusted and have brought into the fold and has asked his advice. And imagine that. Imagine being in any position in the world, any job where over and over again, no matter how many regime changes in your company or wherever you are happen, you stay there through all the administrations. People always want you back because you're a person who's smart, who's worldly, who knows how to deal with all different kinds of personalities and people, and who's somebody who has unique and a gifted sense of right and wrong and how to make things happen in a way that you feel comfortable as an administration, even if you've let go almost every single other person before you. And to me, if you can have those kind of qualities in your job, and I'm sure in your company there's always one guy or one girl that has lasted 20 years, 25 years through God knows how many administrations, and you always say to yourself, God, how did they do it? Well, they did it the same way Gordon did it, through great work, trust, intelligence, wherewithal, navigation. And if you can figure out a way to create those qualities within your company, or whatever affiliation you're in, I can guarantee you, you'll have an opportunity to have the kind of career that Gordon Ferry has had. Here we go in three, two. This show will have laughter. I got everybody pregnant with Barry Katz and semen. I'm not comfortable with the tone this is taking. If you're undeniable, you will not be denied. If you want to be successful in show business, you get yourself a Jew white manager like Barry Katz. Being a manager is just turning no's into yeses. Creating holy shit moments. Undeniable. You fucking firing me up, Katz. I love this man. Is there anything else I should know? You're on. What? Barry Katz. Back in the house. 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 Let's do this. Welcome back to another episode of Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. Today is an episode I can guarantee you, you will not forget. It's a special episode based on the release of the JFK documents. It's an interview I did with Gordon Ferry for the movie I did in theaters called I Killed JFK which you can get if you want, along with these special interviews of five of the last remaining living experts on the assassination. You can get it at ikilljfk.com, and I can tell you something, it will change the way you think about this country and the way you think about the events that happened in 1963 with over 20 different interviews of some of the greatest experts in the world including my guest today, Gordon Ferry, in a very, very rare interview. You will not find anything on this guy, and it's amazing what he had to say. He's working on a new book called Evil that's going to be coming out in the next six months. It's very, very special things that he shared with me that I 
can't even believe that I was privy to hear. I'll never forget this interview, and I know you won't either. So without further ado, let me introduce him, and then we'll get on with it. Gordon Ferry was born on October 19, 1941, in Port Chester, New York, and lived in White Plains until September 1959. A steamfitter in New York at 14 and declared an emancipated minor at 15 by the New York courts, he enlisted in the United States Marine Corps from 59 to 69. Four years of active duty, two and a half years attached to the presidential protective detail with Eisenhower and Kennedy, and served one year in the Marine Corps intelligence. His education spans so many different subjects, it's mind-boggling. He has an MBA from New York University Graduate School of Business, a BS at the University of Rhode Island in 1968, a Certificate in Language and Socioeconomics from the School for Intercultural Communications in Puerto Rico, and studied international banking at the University of Colorado. He worked in international banking from 1968 to 2000 simultaneously while he worked with many administrations in financial trade and export security assistance with a 37-year record of no losses in lending and a lifetime no-claims record with the world's underwriters. He was a leading financer of U.S. export security assistance in the world. He was a member of the senior management teams of Irvine Trust Bank in New York, FNBC Chicago, Casa di Risparmio di Torino in Italy, and he was a member of every committee in the New York Clearinghouse. He was a consultant to the U.S. government and others for over 20 years. He was a co-manager of First Chicago International, the second largest EDGE Act bank and president and CEO of several insurance training and electronic intel companies. He's worked on classified and confidential intelligence and defense financing matters for the Aerospace Industries Association members and for the Secretaries of Defense and Secretary of State especially. He's been incredibly active in the Cold War, War on Drugs, War on Terrorism, Organized Crime, Pirates, the Iranian Revolution, and special operations through so many White House administrations. Ladies and gentlemen, it is my pleasure and my honor to introduce to you one of the rarest of the rare and who's going to really reveal information that is going to blow you away. Please welcome my guest today from his home, Gordon Ferry. Fine, welcome to our home. What a beautiful home it is. It really is beautiful. I have so many things to ask you, but I think the first thing I have to ask you after watching the film is who shot JFK and why do you believe that James Files delivered the killing round? Uh, the answer to that question is that uh, Charles Nicoletti and, and Files are the two shooters that day, firing from the uh, in the case of Nicoletti from the Dow Tex building and files from the grassy knoll. Um, I've taken a look at the, um, the allegations of other people being shooters and what have you, but the examination of uh, the 
interviews, the taped interviews of Charles Files, corroborated from many other sources. I've gotten a lot of people to talk that shouldn't have talked, um, tell me that they are the two who did the shooting and why and so forth. Um, the, my background, in part, is, I think, unique to what I've seen in the sense that I've been a sniper. Uh, and not only that, but at the time that this occurred was when I was doing that uh, and when I was, a, let's call it an, an advanced shooter. But I was doing that for the Marine Corps and for presidential security. Um, looking at what has occurred and, and, and the players by somebody who has been a player makes all the difference in the world. Uh, right after the assassination, when a number of, we call them shooters, talked informally, there was a unanimous feeling as to what had happened and what didn't happen because of our expertise. And I think the people who were involved and behind the assassination and the coup d'etat were well aware of that and did what they could to avoid having people like me around to take a look at things. Everybody says that it's was a well-planned out event, yet in 51 years, there's not a written memo. There's not a person who was sitting next to a person who had too much to drink at a bar and recorded what they said. There's not any kind of inter-office phone call that might have been recorded. There's nothing in 51 years except a guy in a prison giving a confession two different times to video cameras and documentarians. James Files, how is it possible that if all these factions, Cuba, the CIA, possibly LBJ, the Chicago mob, that there's not one piece of written evidence or anything in 51 years and there's only one guy who's admitting to taking the shot? Um, I find your premise uh, completely faulty. Um, the reason is there have been plenty of people who uh, tried to come forward, many of whom were murdered, many. And the second thing is that the, the cover-up of all of this uh, was accomplished by the people that actually did it. So anytime you know, there was something to be avoided or suppressed, they had all the switches to do that. Uh, it was a true coup d'etat. I, I, in my book that I'm about to come out with uh, called Evil, it names all the names in the institutions, the CIA, all these people were involved. And that sounds impossible in and itself. Uh, but it happens to be true. The CIA was principally running the show, but they had been in bed with the, with the mafia forever and still are today. Uh, the FBI was up to its neck in it, and they took care of doctoring most of the evidence. They saw to it. Uh, what evidence was gathered and what evidence was ignored. Uh, Richard Helms, uh, I know, uh, and I had a personal run-in because he was a little upset that I was uncovering so much about the, all the assassination of material witnesses that were going on. Typically, when witness lists were published for any one of the three or four congressional uh, investigations that were committed. And the Warren Commission was a total setup with participants in the actual coup d'etat. It was a coup d'etat. The only guy who didn't do any shooting was Oswald. All right, so 
you had said that it's a faulty premise, so I want to go on that, if you don't mind. So, you say that a lot of people have died. In the documentary, it says over 100 people have died trying to get the word out. But you're still with us, and you have a lot of statements that you've made. Why did those people, presumably, why were they killed, but you're still with us? There are a couple of reasons for that. Um, one is that my wife and I moved to Mexico for seven or eight years, but before I left, um, I contacted the Secret Service and arranged a meeting in Norfolk, Virginia, with a representative from uh, Secret Service Intelligence and uh, also the manager of the field office in Norfolk, which is very substantial because of the naval base. Uh, and in it, I told them some, but not all, of what actually happened. And I was asked by uh, a question by the uh, intelligence person why I'd waited so long to come forward. And I, and I said, because I didn't feel like getting clipped. And he laughed. He says, I guess that's a pretty good reason, because he already knew about it. Okay. He knew about it. He knew about everything. And the second reason is because um, I was doing um, just all sorts of incredible things with the U.S. government in the Cold War and the war on drugs and terrorism and what have you and different things that were going on, very uniquely from Wall Street. And I was working with foreign intelligence agencies, um, and I was very valuable, and I had lots of friends. I had a kidnapping attempt on me in Brazil, and the Mossad saved my life there. So Richard Helms was a little upset with me, and I was under surveillance, and I hosted a—I didn't host. A, I was asked to be the only speaker at a luncheon, a private luncheon in Washington, with high-level defense people. And um, Helms um, came uh, to that meeting and uh, was the only had, I think, five tables uh, with people seated. And the only place there wasn't a place card was across from me. So Helms came in and he sat down there and I went through my spiel and then we all had lunch. And he never stopped having eye contact with me and he never talked to anybody. And it was, I think a message was either, you know, to try and intimidate me, which was a waste of time, or the other was that he was trying to figure out if he could get away with clipping me, because what I had been investigating was how many people he was killing. If all these people were involved, and as you know, we all know in our lives, you cover something up, you're the ones who did it. The people who are covering things up are not the people who didn't do it. They're the people who did it. And obviously, who has the power in the U.S. government to cover things up? I don't believe you can cover things up without the president knowing. I don't believe you can cover things up without the head of the CIA knowing. But back then, there's no email. There's either phone calls or inter-office memos or any kind of written documents. Again. Why in 51 years has no one seen a written document that has anything to do with directives having to do with November 22nd? Uh, again, your premise is faulty. Um, the, there have been plenty 
of documents. There have been plenty of people coming forward. And what happens in those instances is there's been a over a 55-year period run by the CIA of disinformation. That disinformation has led to what I would call the assassination of a German chap a few months ago who was uncovering that suppression uh, of the media in Europe by the CIA. And similarly, we have people in the U.S. who have uncovered, and it's on the record, you can find it in the government records, that shows the CIA had complete operations of, uh, of subduing the media here in the United States and does to this day. All the investigators who have uh, written uh, wonderful articles, books, and what have you based on, on tidbits of information, really, that information is suppressed. Major publishing houses will not publish them, so they have to go to small publishers. In other cases, you have um, the, the fact that at the time of the assassination and in the investigations thereafter, the FBI was going around and they were gathering up all the information they could get, and they were either destroying it, altering it, or they were locking it up for decades uh, not to be looked at. Um, because Jagger Hoover was involved in this, and the people who worked with him on the technical side of altering evidence, there were about five of them, were all subpoenaed to appear before Congress, and they were all murdered within two weeks. All right, so you had the CIA and the FBI, and uh, completely covering up this thing all this time, right up to date. And I know exactly what I'm talking about. There is hard evidence out there, a lot of it, and it's about to come forth. As an example, um, the other people who've tried to deal with this and have tried to surface information, I say, I call it they're working from the bottom up. I had the luxury of getting somebody at the top talk to me before he died and give me the top-down road that I took in order to develop the information on all of this. And that was Elliot Janeway, the economist and advisor to every Democratic president from Roosevelt to LBJ. And he was well aware of what was going on and part of it. Elliot Janeway um, was a probably the best informed man I've ever met in my life. Uh, in the course of doing what I did for the U.S. government, uh, I would attend uh, a, what they call the force and readiness exhibitions for the United States Marine Corps that are held once or twice a year. When you go and you view equipment and technologies that are being offered for sale to the military. And I specialized in aviation and black projects in aviation. And um, at one of those events, which was at the, uh, in DC, I saw a technical tear sheet on a company in California called American Aircraft. And it had the technology, one of the technologies I was looking for. So I approached that company and its president, uh, Bill Moody, and got involved along with the Vice Admiral, um, uh, former head of area, U.S. Naval Aviation, who was interested in it as well. And they arranged for me to meet their chief advisor and investor, one of their investors, and that happened to be L.A. Janeway. So that's how I met him uh, at my club in New York. And uh, uh, from there, he and I developed a close rapport because he had a weekly national uh, radio show as well as a syndicated column all over the world on finance and politics. And I would contribute to him on international finance matters uh, in that. 
and we became very close. And just before uh, he died, um, when I finally got him to talk about what went on with LBJ, he's a very well-known advisor to LBJ along with Bobby Baker. Um, at that time, uh, he talked to me about what happened, but he stopped. He couldn't go on any, any further. And then it was only a few months later, two or three months later, he died. Okay. And I had promised him I would never talk about anything he told me um, as long as he was alive. And he never talked to anybody else. So he's the only one that I know at the top in the conspiracy talked. It wasn't that he was a conspirator. It was that he couldn't stay away from uh, the, the drama of it all and his uh, being enmeshed in that. And I can supplement that. I do in my book with information from his family and from others as to what type of man he was. So um, that was uh, uh, a situation where I have documentary evidence or documentary evidence is at hand which is that in the summer of 1963, uh, approximately three months before the assassination, Elliot went to money managers, um, that, and that's documented because people were frightened to death when he'd go see them, talking about how great it would be if something happened to Kennedy and uh, Lyndon Johnson would become president, and we'll all be a lot better off if that happens. The documentation exists and has been substantiated on that. So there is documentary evidence. There are witnesses. Many came forth and got killed for their trouble. Others uh, were hit by the disinformation program that the CIA has been running all this time, uh, which ridicules people who come forward as conspiracy freaks and what have you. And this has been uh, fake news. It's been uh, pure disinformation of a classic type. And it's, frankly, it's the swamp that Mr. Trump is involved with now. Uh, draining the swamp means exposing these institutions for the criminality of what they've been involved in. And trust me, it'll happen, it'll happen this year. Hey everybody, let me remind you one more time about my new blueprint for success. It's a project I've spent months and months working on just to help you jumpstart your comedy career and beat the competition. Whether you want to do stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, radio, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or agent, Blueprint for Success will give you all the tools you need to take your career to the highest levels. With exclusive interviews, my top 50 commercial-free episodes from Industry Standard, one-on-one -on -one coaching with me, and unprecedented access into my knowledge and experience from over 40 years in this crazy business. I guarantee you that with Blueprint for Success, you'll become the creator you've always dreamed of becoming. No one's asking me to do this. I want to do it because I want to help you become truly undeniable. So just go to barrycats.com, click on Blueprint for Success, and start your incredible journey today. I truly can't wait to work with you to help you change the trajectory of your comedy career forever. Hey everybody, I am really, really excited. We have a sponsor, AquaTrue. 
This is the first countertop water purifier using multi-stage reverse osmosis technology. I know it sounds complicated, but let's put it this way. This is something that can take your tap water and can turn it into your favorite bottled water for pennies. You're going to be enjoying the best water, the safest water and if you haven't read all the news about Flint, Michigan, in every single state, there's over 100 chemicals found in tap water that are not even regulated by the EPA. Many of them are cancer-causing and have lead in them. So you can go to a special website that we've set up called industrystandardwater.com. It takes you directly to the AquaTrue site. And if you get this product, you're going to get $100 off. Just type in 100 in the special code section. You'll get that money off and you'll start saving. You can put a whole huge bottle of Diet Coke in this machine. And 10 minutes later, it'll come out with the best tasting water you've ever had. I got one of these products. It was unbelievable. Industrystandardwater.com. And you'll be enjoying the best and most cost-effective water you've ever tasted. From your expertise, take us through how it's possible from the first germ of an idea that we got to get rid of this guy to how it gets to the point where it's all set up and ready to go in Dallas. What, in your expertise, What's the first conversation that happens? And is there anybody in the room, like there is in every room, in every conversation in the world, saying, uh, I think that sounds like a crazy idea. I don't think that's, uh, we're not going to be, we're not going to be killing the president. I mean, come on, you guys are kidding, right? Is there somebody who's fighting it internally? And where do the first germs of the idea come from? as it gets planned, and how long do you think it is in the making? I can tell you exactly when the planning began, in some detail. The planning really started with the Democratic Convention, uh, when uh, Kennedy was uh, going to run for the first time for the presidency uh, in California. And it starts with the Kennedy family. Uh, Joseph P. Kennedy wanted to have his eldest son, Joe, run for president after the war. But unfortunately, Joe was a very brave man, died in combat towards the end of the war. And therefore, uh, Jack inherited the mantle of, of his father's ambition. Uh, Joseph P. Kennedy um, knew that to have a Roman Catholic president, now bear in mind, I come from that period. Uh, so I'm like a time capsule. I remember how people felt about a Catholic becoming president and the Pope running the country. That may jar a few memory uh, cells for you. Um, and they knew that in order to win the presidency, they had to win over the Dixiecrats, the Southern Democratic votes, who detested uh, aristocratic uh, New Englanders okay, in general, and the Kennedys specifically. Did Oswald actually try to kill JFK, and who did he work for? All right, um, at the convention in California in the summer of 1960, um, at that point, 
Joseph P. Kennedy and JFK were working towards his nomination for President of the United States at the convention. The key to that for the Kennedys was getting the Dixiecrat vote. And the opinion that um, Kennedy, uh, Joseph P. Kennedy had was that Lyndon Johnson controlled the Dixiecrats, and if he could get him on board, they could deliver the Southern vote. His uh, son, John Fitzgerald Kennedy, and his people that were around him uh, didn't like any thought about uh, LBJ, and he went after Stuart Symington. And his father apparently ignored him, <laughs> just went ahead. And um, he had a meeting and a negotiation for three days, Joseph P. Kennedy did in California, which resulted in an offer being made to LBJ and his closest advisors, which at that meeting included Bobby Baker and uh, Elliot Janeway was present. And it was an offer of a $4 million bribe from Joseph P. Kennedy, matched by another $4 million from uh, LBJ's business partners for a total of $8 million. And that was going to be rejected. However, um, LBJ was facing a number of indictments that were under preparation, I think nine, at the Department of Justice for very serious federal crimes, including murder. And he needed to make all that go away. So Bobby Baker um, reminded him, and then reminded others there who were dead set against this, that Lyndon would only be a heartbeat away from the presidency if he were vice president. When uh, the word got to Jack Kennedy, which was a fait accompli, that uh, LBJ would be his running mate, he had already closed the deal with Stuart Symington. So there was quite a ruckus. And of course, uh, he wasn't about to tell anybody that daddy told me I had to. <laughs> so um, at the end of the convention, LBJ and two people I won't name now but are in my book, um, retired as soon as they got back to Dallas and started planning the assassination of Kennedy at that early date. The, um, what happened was that over the course of his first term in office, uh, which is when I was there with him. Um, he did a number of other things that alienated uh, all the key groups that constitute part of what we call today the shadow government or the uh, what have you. And uh, as a result of that, and that included Jagger Hoover, who was going to be forcibly retired, it included the CIA, which was going to be broken up and replaced. And there is an order in existence from JFK to uh, Mac, Secretary McNamara, the Secretary of Defense, to break it up into, quote, a thousand pieces, unquote. Also, Lyndon was going to be kicked off the ticket for the second term. And he was still facing those charges that Bobby had pursued. The mafia was pissed off because Old man Kennedy had uh, gotten their support in Illinois and West Virginia for the election, which Jack only narrowly won. 
and they expected rewards. Instead, they got Bobby Kennedy sick down. The oil people, um, uh, he was, they, was going to take away the oil depletion allowances, so they were upset. And the Joint Chiefs of Staff and the far-right military intelligence people um, were uh, very upset with him because he had already started, uh, by the end of his first term, to withdraw troops from Vietnam. But there was more to it than that, which again, I go into my book, but um, that's enough for now. It's quite good on your plate for that. So um, that's how I know from uh, what Elliot Janeway told me about that meeting. I've had cooperation from other places um, that that took place. There is actually, there are some tape recordings I understand in existence, which are devastating, absolutely devastating. Um, and so, uh, that's that's how it started. That's how separate groups of people can come together in common cause. That's how coup d'etat comes about. There's a 1,200-word article that uh, David Denton wrote, which was quite marvelous. It's up on his blog, uh, and in it he provides uh, some material evidence along those lines as well. Um, and he. Um, he took the name uh, that I offered him of Nexus for the article, N-E-X-U-S, which is a coming together of uh, a number of things. Do you mind just taking another minute, letting our audience know how many days before does it really escalate in terms of the back and forth of information and directives for every single person? Because obviously, Lee Harvey Oswald has a role. There's some role that he's been told to do. Now the American people, a lot of them feel like his role was to shoot the president. A lot of people who are experts in the field say his role was to plant the gun at the depository with the shells and meet somebody in the movie theater to take him to another place or to go someplace else. The mobsters that were purportedly involved somebody has to tell them and give them a directive of what's going to happen so when does this escalate to where it's a go because there are reports that have said that the morning of the assassination that the cia called off the assassination but the mob decided that they weren't going to follow those orders so i just wanted to make sure from your expertise this last piece so we can be informed and know from your research and you're one of the most renowned people around so what your thought process is about that last week and how it escalated. I, I can answer that very specifically the last part. I have total detail on everything else you touched on but I'm going to sit here and we're going to be here for a day and night to go through everything that's in the book. There's so much that went on all of which I know about. Uh, but in terms of your specific question, uh, number one, uh, Lee Harvey Oswald was simply the patsy, from beginning to end. Okay. Was he doing other things? Yes. Were they uh, highly questionable things? Yes. Do I know what they are? Yes. Do I know where he got his income from? Yes. The shooting that took place from the Dow Tex building involved the CIA, sorry, the uh, um, Mafia hitman, Charles Nicoletti. And uh, also in the building at that time was Johnny Rosselli, who flew in on a CIA-sponsored MATS flight with Plumlee as a pilot. 
Oh, and also, which I've been in communication with him. We're trying to get together. He was overseas when we tried to contact him recently. Uh, and there are also um, the, um, what's his name, uh, Dale Braden uh, was in there in, in a minor role. So um, the principal shooter was, uh, in fact, uh, to be um, Nicoletti. And uh, James Files, as was he faithfully reported, was asked to be backup shooter, and he did exactly what I would have done. I walked Dealey Plaza in, in less time than he did, and I picked the same places <laughs> so, uh, as a sniper would. We call them hides in the military. And he, he claims a military background, and there's no question that the CIA can make those records evaporate anytime they feel like it. So, uh, yeah, and you talk then about the activities. Well, the activities I can, I do describe in the book, including organization charts and what the chains of command were, what the roles were of each, and uh, what I call five meetings that occurred that were absolutely key. The first meeting being the negotiation for the $8 million. Um, and, of course, that negotiation opened up on LBJ's side, saying he wanted to be president and Jack could be vice president, and that didn't go anywhere. Uh, the second one being the meeting where the deal was proposed, and Bobby Baker said that you're only a heartbeat away, so accept it. Uh, the third meeting uh, occurred the night before the assassination in the Texas Hotel, uh, which I reported on my talks uh, in Dallas uh, in November of the last two years. Um, the next meeting was at Clint Murchison's in Fort Worth, in Dallas, rather, I'm sorry. And then there was a last meeting, which is very key that nobody knows anything about, and I report on in the book that night. So, uh, aside from those meetings, there was an infrastructure over who was in charge of the overall of the, uh, the day in Dealey Plaza and the various groups that had to be coordinated. Uh, in fact, I had that chain of command. And then there was, of course, also the plan for the FBI's principal role in the cover-up uh, in terms of the physical evidence, interviews, and what have you, and the CIA's role in the cover-up in terms of seeing to it that uh, witnesses uh, did not bear witness. Um, and the CIA has a culture and it has a, a signature for killing, and I'm familiar with that signature. Uh, and where they can, they prefer not to get their hands dirty themselves. They do that through second and third parties. Uh, and the FBI isn't in that kind of business. And I spent almost three years uh, working in Wackenhut Corporation while attending college as area supervisor in southern New England um, in the late 60s. And uh, with FBI agents, and they were wonderful people that had great skills packages. Both in the CIA and the FBI, the people who were doing the dirty stuff were highly compartmentalized, and that was not general knowledge to the rank and file, nor would it agree with their culture, to be honest with you. But it happened, and I, I know the names, and uh, the evidence, if people had the, the insight or had the privilege of getting somebody at the top to give you the key to the puzzle, um, uh, went, uh, went. I won't say easily, but 
when you combine that with other people that I got to talk in the CIA and the uh, Secret Service and uh, in uh, other places uh, to do with Cuba and the Cuban exile community. And the CIA has been pumping out disinformation for over 55 years. And they've put so many red herrings out there and they put so much data out there and hit so much real data and they you know, smoke and mirrors so much that uh, really without a key to the puzzle, it's hard for anybody to figure out what that's all about. I'm just a regular guy. I'm not an expert like you. I'm just like everybody else. I was a young person. I'm watching my mother crying in the kitchen, watching the black and white television of the funeral procession. Since that time, I've always been fascinated by it. They always say, let's go to the videotape. You got the Sapruder film, the most watched short film in the history of the world. Before he goes to the obstruction of the sign, he's happy and he's waving, or at least he's looking around the president. He comes out of the sign, he's got his hands to his throat, that universal position of when somebody's hit in the spine or somewhere in the spine, their body goes to that position. And then the film keeps going. You see what happens to him when he's been shot. Please explain to me how the American people and how everybody in the, the Senate and the Congress and everybody around after the Warren Commission comes out and Arlen Specter is the lead guy who says it's a single bullet, single bullet theory. Will you explain to me as an expert how it's possible to sell that to the American people and the Senate and the Congress and everybody in the world when the videotape clearly shows that it wasn't a single bullet? Well, you sell it by a combination of, of propaganda, of control of the media, uh, which they have. If you want to look into Dorothy Kilgallen's death, you might find that illustrative. Um, you do it by um, a absolutely stocked deck in the Warren Commission you do it because the two principal data gatherers for the Warren Commission were the perpetrators. <laughs> okay. And, um, you know, there were so many obvious things that should have been done that weren't. When it comes to the magic bullet theory, there isn't anybody who's a pro in shooting uh, that don't find that laughable. And I've been taught by the very best in the world, the very best. And nobody would argue with that. You're talking about people that have won Olympic gold medals, who are recognizable experts. There's never been a finer sniper than Carlos Hathcock, uh, and what have you. And uh, it was a very small world. And we were briefed when we would, let's say, in 1960, when Charles de Gaulle came to Washington to visit Eisenhower. We were briefed by the French Secret Service on the OAS's activities, uh, which were out to kill uh, de Gaulle. And also that uh, the, uh, some of the top special forces of the French government had rebelled against um, de Gaulle because they wanted, didn't want independence for Algeria. And they melted into the Marseille underground to become hitmen for hire. They became uh, probably the finest group of assassins for hire in the world. So, you know, I was privy to that kind of information. 
the American people are in shock, they're gullible, they have people that they've learned to trust unquestionably in both institutions and the Walter Cronkites of this world. And I think we know today that that trust was in many cases, maybe most cases, misplaced. I can tell you working with the FBI through Wackenhut as an example that uh, we were hired by Governor Kirk of Florida to investigate ties between organized crime and the Florida State Legislature. I wasn't on that detail myself, but uh, I was aware of it. And in just a period of a few months, uh, Wackenhut had uh, indictments prepared against over half of the Florida State Legislature. And the legislature voted to cut off all funding to Governor Kirk's office. Governor Kirk couldn't pay Wackenhut. Wackenhut walked off the job and the indictments died. That's Florida. Okay? Things haven't gotten better since. Nor have they gotten better with the U.S. Congress. Uh, I better stop here because um, what I have to say is dynamite. It's absolute dynamite. Hey, everybody. Just a special reminder because of the content of this particular podcast. If you didn't get to see the documentary film, I Killed JFK, which was in theaters this past spring, or the five interviews of the last remaining living experts on the JFK assassination, which aired immediately following the documentary in those theaters. You can go to IKillJFK.com. You can check out the trailer. You can buy both of these programs. And I tell you, there's over 20 different interviews of experts and witnesses that will just take your breath away, including a confession of the only person who's living who ever admitted to killing JFK from the grassy knoll in the past 54 years. And with the release of all this JFK information, it's a must to have. I killjfk.com. Pick up these films. I guarantee you they will blow you away. But you mentioned something interesting before. You mentioned that you also had training as a sniper. You mentioned that the government had access to the greatest assassin snipers in the world that were trained all over. So why is a guy who is a runner for the mob, who's calibrating the weapons, asked to be back up on the grassy knoll and you believe took the fatal shot in an elaborate plot to kill the president and a guy who isn't even a trained assassin at the time he's 23 or something is the guy who takes the fatal shot does that sound like a foolproof plan uh, i can answer that with making a separate but highly related point um, I know LBJ was in overall charge of, uh, of all of this for the reasons I've stated. And he had the, he was the only one who had the power to deal with the cover-up and, and all, all of these other problems that each of these groups had. And he would, because he was very close to those uh, organizations. And that's an understatement. Okay? But he had his own hitman, Mac Wallace. And Mac Wallace wasn't a guy that any of these other groups would trust with their futures. Now, I think you can see that, right? Well, nobody would trust, um, certainly, Oswald either. And in terms of files, uh, 
there are at least three people who've done excellent, excellent interviews for the files. And I've talked to two of them, and they say basically they were convinced by files, but their doubt is there because he seems so young. Well, let me tell you, at the time of the shooting, Files, me, the greatest sniper we ever produced, Hathcock, okay, were all almost an identical age with a lot of experience. And Files, I wrote him a letter in it was a Denville prison last spring asking to be put on his visitors list. And I, I listed a number of questions shooter to shooter that I would like him to respond to. And those questions were what you might suspect. I was very familiar with, but I can't talk about uh, parts of the secret war in Laos that occurred at that time that he claims to go there. And I can tell you what I can tell you is that both the mafia and the CIA were well involved in the Golden Triangle at that point in the narcotics business. So he goes into the middle of that, and he comes out to go back to Chicago and form a relationship with Nicoletti and become a hitter. But he still, to some degree, represents the CIA as well as the mob. So I wanted to know who he hooked up with and where he got his training. I still do want to know that. However, um, I can explain one thing about files that nobody knows. And I think that you'll find it very interesting. When I joined the Marine Corps, there were a lot of orphans that joined. And I was sitting uh, one uh, evening, we had our own little bar where we lived. Uh, and uh, in that bar, two senior NCOs, one of whom is in Time Magazine, and a photograph of me with the Kennedys and President Kekon of Finland, his wife who's a, a veteran, was a veteran ultimately of uh, three wars, World War II, Korea, and Vietnam. At that time, he was a veteran of two. And they were laughing. They were laughing about how young Marines come in who not had fathers or had you know, that kind of problem. And they latch on to sergeants as their surrogate fathers without realizing it. And it's so common that it's humorous to them although they reciprocate. So you get this bond between people like that. Well, Files, you know, I have a question for him about his childhood. I haven't heard any comments about his parents or anything. But he certainly, I recognize his bonding with Nicoletti, who is double his age, more than double his age. Uh, and why he felt so strongly, even today, about getting even for the assassination of Nicoletti by the CIA, directly or indirectly, I'm sure, along with Giancana uh, and others. Um, I can also recognize that Files was, says that he doesn't have any regrets today about the Kennedy assassination. The reason that he quotes is the Bay of Pigs. Well, I was fully involved and subject to all of the secrecy agreements, so I can't talk about it all the Cuban operations. And I can tell you, and I've said this publicly and without hesitation, but I can't explain it to other people, that if Kennedy had landed in either operation, he'd be at risk of being killed by his own men. 
And that's a feeling that Nicoletti uh, referenced but didn't explain. But I know what that feeling was. I was very confused myself. Uh, protecting Eisenhower and, and what wonderful people the Eisenhowers were. Any transition from one executive officer to another is difficult. But to go from two wonderful people like that uh, to uh, someone who is, he and Jackie, somewhat plastic, uh, and what have you, is not easy. But when you're aware of what's going on in those two operations, um, on the one hand, I had some very strong feelings against Jack. On the other hand, I have very even stronger feelings that I'm determined if I ever can to bring down these killers, and that I'm doing here. Um, so I would, on the other hand, I would watch a speech that uh, Jack Kennedy would give in his oratory, and I would be just as emotionally swayed as everybody else and think, well, what a wonderful guy, <laughs> what a wonderful concepts, you know. So it was confusing to me, because I was one of those people too. My father would be hospitalized for three years at a time, and I latched onto one of the two sergeants who was talking. I changed my habits immediately as soon as I became aware. And I, I immediately identified with and understood exactly where Files was coming from, how he felt about Nicoletti, how Nicoletti felt about him. Because there is no institutional loyalty in the CIA, the FBI, the Marine Corps, or anything else per se. You have loyalties to your, your unit, and you have loyalties to personal relationships that you trust, because your life is on the line. And you don't play with that. So. They knew they could get double-crossed any minute in the, uh, in the Mafia. So they had each other's back, no matter what. And that's why Nicoletti gave Files the book with evidence against various dirty people to help protect them. Because once he saw Giancana was whacked, he knew he was next, and he was hoping to help his surrogate son out with his Files. I'm not a psychiatrist. I shouldn't practice psychiatry without a license. But I've seen that so many times, it makes me sick. Obviously, you feel that LBJ and the CIA were involved in this because they covered it up, and you don't cover something up that you don't start. But certainly, in the best laid plans, the, the greatest high-profile murder in history that there's all these groups that are involved in planning. Certainly, you're not hoping that the 23-year-old driver who's calibrating the weapons is the guy who you're counting on to carry out the mission. So what's your philosophy on that? I just, I don't agree with that premise either. At 17, I would kill you in a heartbeat and I'd think twice about it. But if you were the President of the United States, would you want the guy who has tons of experience carrying out your job, or would you want the guy who's the runner that week for the mob? Let, let me uh, tell you what my feeling is about that. I think it was the biggest mess I've ever seen in my life. I think it couldn't been run a more sloppy or public way. I think the amount of professionalism involved was almost nothing. And the reason was, the same reason that the Russians uh, during the Cold War built very powerful fighters. Because they built the biggest engines and you couldn't overhaul them, so once they needed an overhaul, you had to throw them away and get other ones. 
They, they relied on sheer power. Well, here, they held all the power. They held the CIA, they held the FBI, they held the Department of Justice, they held the law, they held Texas, they held the presidency, they held the Warren Commission. That's a big engine. And they can be as sloppy as they like because they also controlled a lot of the media. Now they control almost all of it. And that meant that they just bulldozed their way through. But uh, do I admire the professionalism? No. When it comes to the shooting, you've got Mac Wallace running around uh, in a very uh, boastful way talking about having 54 shooters on uh, people involved in the killing under him and all this sort of thing. Uh, I don't think he had anybody under him for those purposes. I think I know where that comes from and I explain it in my book. Um, so you certainly wouldn't trust uh, LBJ's hitman if you're the CIA or FBI. But the people that were used are people that are reliable. People like Lonsdale, people like David Atlee Phillips, okay? people like the five senior technicians in the FBI who doctored evidence. There was a lot there that you could rely on. But there was so much loose talk. The day of the assassination was like a damn carnival. People came not only from out of town, but from out of the country to watch it. There were so many people in the know. All right? It's something, the less you knew about, the better. And you've heard files say, look, the less you know about these things, the better. Is he right? Is he right? This, this was a farce. It was a social event in Texas life. Is there a path to closure for the Kennedy family and the American people and the world with the release of these new documents? And if there is, how do you see it shaking out? There is a path. And it's, it's a path that we have no option but to take. Um, the, a little over a year ago when um, Larry Sabato at the University of Virginia was going from hardcover to softcover on his book on the assassination. Um, I spent three months with his chief of staff, a little bit with him, going over the book and uh, commenting on timelines and whatever. But his basic conclusion you know, was not good, but he wanted to know what did I think Kennedy's legacy was. And I had to think about that and get back to him on it. And when I did, I, for the first time, I got the answer myself. The legacy, because he, he had no real legacy from the first term in office. And I had harsh feelings about him. But when I got through that process, I developed respect for him. And now I do think he could have been a great president had he lived for another term. Because he had set in motion basic changes to rectify which in part he found and understood. To a great extent, he didn't realize how large an adversary he was taking on. He was breaking rice bowls all over the place, more than he knew. So his legacy was that he had started to withdraw troops from Vietnam. He had recognized the need to break up the CIA and, and form a new intelligence agency. He recognized the need to forcibly retire J. Edgar Hoover and ignore blackmail. He recognized the need to have detente and to deal with a totally out of control Joint Chiefs of Staff 
who were recommending a first strike on the Soviet Union and false flag strikes on two U.S. cities, which he tape recorded. And when he listened to tape recorders without the knowledge of his own staff, he found that after he had left, and these were the recommendations they were making to him, they went on to talk about the necessity of eliminating him. People understand how corrupt everything has become in order to fix it. And we have a man in office right now who is uh, the person who, when he says drain the swamp, that's exactly what he means. Which is why I have spent some very intense time with both the FBI and the Secret Service a year ago, convincing them of the absolute need to protect them, knowing both to some degree were dirty. Uh, and that I gave them a list of the people who absolutely, to, with raw intelligence that was current, that absolutely had to have him dead rather than be president of the United States, because the assassination of Kennedy isn't the main event. We're involved in the main event right now. This is a continuum of activity that was dirty starting with World War II, and it goes on to date. Tell our audience the greatest holy shit moment story that you have in your arsenal. All your stories are drowning in the ocean, and the one that you can tell to our audience that maybe hasn't been told or it's an obscure chapter in a book, or it's from research that you found surrounding the assassination of JFK. There is such a story, but I'm, I'm bound to secrecy, and until such a time as the government can release me from that, I cannot tell you what it is. Would you mind telling us a story that you have told, but that maybe this wide an audience has never heard? Man, I know so many. It's unbelievable. I know, and not just on the Kennedy assassination, but on every major national security event we've had. Uh, the one I, I've already referenced that I can't comment on is the granddaddy of, of everything. Um, I, I'm in a strange position, a unique position. I don't think anybody else is ever been anything quite like it. Um, when I was uh, in the Marine Corps, when I was detached to the presidential protection detail, when I was detached for this and that, um, and when I worked for Wackenhut, I had top secret clearances in just about everything, uh, top secret White House, you name it. Um, and I was subject to the most dire personal treatment if I were to ever violate that. Okay. However, when I left all of that, I thought I had anyway, and I went to Wall Street and became very successful, successful in international trade and what have you, um, I started to get involved with um, the military industrial complex in a way that nobody else in history ever has. For 37 years, I've been involved in special operations and everything you can imagine. But I didn't work for the government. I didn't even have one expense reimbursed. And um, on 911, as an example, I was working directly with the, the director of the Defense Intelligence Agency staff and him. 
And um, after a number of meetings, some of which were held in my own penthouse in Pentagon City, I, um, in, in a break, I said to an aide, how is it I don't have any more polygraphs? I'm not involved, you know. Oh, no, you're way past that. You don't have any more. So the question is, am I, sub am I subject to any security agreements on all the things I've done since, which have a wealth of fascinating stuff? And I don't mean just to titillate anybody, but very important stuff. Um, I don't know if I'm subject to any penalties because I was not an employee of any of these agencies. And I was loaned out to foreign governments and their intelligence agencies, and they told me all sorts of secrets. Nobody's ever debriefed me or tried to on the United States side. Nobody's ever debriefed me on what I know on, on the U.S. side and the foreign ones. And I have a network of friends all over the world, including in intelligence agencies, because I'm a fair broker and I'm an honest man. And that has made my career because I can do transactions nobody else could even dream of doing it. And I've been asked by the U.S. government on more than one occasion to represent the U.S. government abroad on sensitive issues, and yet I hold no clearance. Or they tell me I have any kind of clearance there is, I mean, and they talk openly. So I don't know. I don't know what my legal status is. So based on what I'm seeing from this documentary and around this whole thing that we're talking about and the new administration coming in, how much trouble are we in as Americans and how much trouble are we in in the world? In Dallas last November 22nd, a very good speaker stood up with an audience. It was three quarters people who've been investigating and researching all this stuff very professionally for the last almost 50 years. And before he started, he says, how many people here believe that this is about right and wrong. And without hesitation, three-quarters of the audience stood up without any conversation or anything. So the trouble we're in is uh, almost biblical, that things have gotten so bad that we're at the tipping point. And if the wrong decisions are made this year, this year, anything can happen, and I mean anything, including thermonuclear war, which I know a lot about. What can you do, I do, the American people and the people of the world who don't want that to happen? What can they do to change that, knowing that 62 million people pressed a lever to make America great again? I have the answer for that. I've spent my lifetime in international trade, so I know a lot about people all over the world. I know in basic matters, people are the same in every country of the world. They love their children. They'd rather be honest than dishonest. There are aberrations to that, but in general, transparency. We need to lance the wound. I'm, I'm aiming for my book to be one of the things that does that. And I, I'm encouraging, trying to encourage all the investigators to find a channel of communication to this administration in order to provide the evidence, the structure, the no, knowledge of all of this 
so that this administration can take the actions it needs to take. But that's precisely why the people who are doing all the bad things will do anything to stop them from doing that. And you're looking at it every day. And obviously the media is no help. Gordon Ferry, check out his new book, Evil, coming out within the next six months. And I really appreciate you coming. You were really wonderful and you had such expertise. Thank you so much. Thank you. Okay, I'm going to scroll through the list of people who sent me a message, a review on the iTunes comment review section. And one of these people will be a lucky winner. And they'll get to attend a podcast live with one of my guests, meet them, shake their hand, ask them a few questions, or else if they're out of town, out of state, or out of the country, we'll Skype them in or FaceTime them or anything like that so they can be there. Why not? So let me look here randomly and pick somebody. All right, landing on Derek Mio, March 25th, 2016. Heading reads, holy inspirational shit, five stars. And it reads, every time I feel pessimistic or discouraged about the industry, I listen to one of Barry's interviews, and I'm immediately reinvigorated, inspired, and most importantly, filled with love for my craft and others in pursuit of it. That is fantastic. Thank you so much, Derek. You are a winner. Special thanks to our sponsor, AquaTrue, the first countertop water purifier using multi-stage reverse osmosis technology. Check it out. Go to industrystandardwater.com. Takes you directly to their website. Type in the code 100. Save yourself $100. I have one of these. It's amazing. Start turning your tap water into the best tasting water industrystandardwater.com and just a reminder if you didn't get a chance to check out the film I Killed JFK or the five rare interviews of the last living people who were the experts on the JFK assassination you can simply go to ikilledjfk.com check out the trailer purchase these two films I guarantee you they will change your life forever ikilledjfk.com as always, this has been Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. And if you like the show, tell all your friends. And if you don't like the show, tell all your friends. You get all the money, drive that fancy car. All the people love you, cause you're going for life is for the dreamers. They have all to gain It's never quite over Till it all feels the same You pick your own poison Dig your own grave Down in the valley A fortune Thank you for listening to Industry Standard with Barry Katz. If you'd like more info on our schedule of new episodes, which will be available for download every Monday, or how to reach Barry through Twitter, Facebook, or email, go to barrykatz.com. Before you leave... 
please take a moment to subscribe to our podcast, leave a comment, and rate it, even if you think it blows. Thank you for your support, and have a great day.